the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to start off today unpacking what's going on at the U.S.-Canada border. The truckers who have blockaded the Ambassador Bridge as a protest against vaccination requirements are disrupting one of the most important commercial crossings in the world. Windsor Mayor Drew Dilkins will tell us how long he's willing to countenance this protest. Then we're going to have a broader conversation about reasonable discourse and disagreement. Are these kinds of acts within the bounds of that discourse, or are they unsupportable? That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. No secret that Detroit is home to the single busiest international land border crossing in North America. But going on four days now, that key artery for U.S.-Canada trade and travel has been blocked. Windsor officials said yesterday that about 50 to 75 vehicles and about 100 protesters are lining that city's entrance to the Ambassador Bridge. And these protesters are angry about pandemic mandates in Canada. Yesterday, Ford announced that these protests have forced the company to shut down its Windsor engine plant. Imagine the economic impact of that, imagine the job impact of that, this is a really, really serious consequence. This so-called freedom convoy is also clogging the streets in Ottawa, causing a state of emergency in the Canadian capital. And there are also concerns mounting that as tensions rise around all of this, this could all lead to some violence. Here to talk with us about the protests, the disruptions they are causing, and how officials are trying to address the situation is the mayor of the city right across the Detroit River, Windsor, Drew Dilkins. Drew, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah. So remind our audience what these protests are about. This is about mandates in Canada, which look a little different, I think, than they do here in the United States. Why are people upset and blocking the Ambassador Bridge from your side of the river? Well, this started uh, several weeks ago, and it was it has morphed uh, greatly since that time. And so the original uh, trucker convoy started as a result of a certain group of truckers uh, being dissatisfied with our federal government who implemented a mandatory uh, vaccine requirement for those truckers returning to Canada, meaning they had to prove that they were vaccinated to come back home. Uh, and, and that was a group that said, you know what, we don't like it. The message was clear and they were protesting. Uh, that narrative has been entirely lost now. So there is still a subset of people who are just upset with mask mandates, vaccine mandates, rules and restrictions related to the pandemic. Uh, but this has morphed into a whole other uh, type event and I would say it's it's analogous to uh, what you would see when the G7 or the G20 meet, where you have people who are just angry with government in general, uh, who are now gathering and, and willing to fight and to protest. Uh, and half of them aren't even really sure why they're there. Hmm. And, and give us a sense of what the disruption of this looks like on your side of the border, just the logistical disruption, but but also the economic one. Yeah, so I, I, you know, there are people on the ground here in terms of the protesters who have outwardly stated that this is a cause they're willing to die for. And so that is why the response hasn't been immediate, because police don't want to go in. I mean, there's no need for people to get hurt or die over this particular uh, set of issues that aren't well defined. And so police are taking a measured approach, trying to find a sensible way forward. But in many ways, uh, you, you can't have a rational conversation when you're not dealing with rational actors. And that, that is really the issue uh, confronting police today. Uh, but the issue is an important one. It's an important one for Detroit. It's an important one for Windsor. This border crossing, this single border crossing, uh, 
handles about eight to 10,000 trucks a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the value of trade that crosses that bridge is about $400 million a day. Uh, and so as, as the mayor of the auto capital of Canada, uh, I can tell you, and everyone in Detroit would know this as well, uh, that our supply chains are so tightly integrated on either side of the border that whether it's a minivan that rolls off the assembly line at Stellantis in Windsor or, or a Ford car that rolls off the assembly line in Dearborn, the parts that go into those vehicles before they leave the, the plant have crossed the border on average six times before they, they are they are uh, rolling off the assembly line. Hmm. And that speaks to the integrated nature uh, of the auto sector. Now, at the same time, the auto industry in general deals with just-in-time delivery, meaning when they need the parts, the parts are delivered just in time by the suppliers and they're not stored in any great uh, any great quantities on site at the plants. And so when you have a disruption at the border, that has an immediate and a material impact on operations on either side of the border. So, so give us a sense of the mood in Canada generally, I guess, about... Uh, COVID restrictions. Uh, are these truckers part of a silent majority, perhaps, of people in Canada who, who, who think the government has gone too far? Or are they outliers uh, who, who don't really represent much of the, of, of the population there? Without question, uh, without even having to think about that answer, they are absolutely a fringe group of outliers. They are not part of the majority of Canadians who have done their part. We've had huge uptake uh, on on COVID vaccines. We've had huge respect for the the restrictions that we've found ourselves in from time to time. And the vast majority of Canadians are angry at this protest. They want to see these people punished. They want to see police go in and flush them out and do whatever they have to do to restore law and order uh, in this country. They do not represent the majority of Canadians. Mm. Uh, and so I would say, you know, they may represent 10% of the population. Uh, and that may be giving, you know, a little more weight than required. But I would say 10% of the population is what this, this protest is all about. The other 90% have done what's been asked of them. Uh, even if it has been somewhat begrudgingly, there are people who have gotten a vaccination from COVID uh, as a result of, of, of employer mandates. Uh, and they've done that. They may not have wanted to, but they recognize the sensibility of doing their part in the middle of a global pandemic, the likes of which none of us have ever experienced uh, in our lives. Uh, and so we all want, you know, Canada is all about, uh, you know, you're, you're about law and justice. Uh, we're about peace, order and good government mm-hmm. on our side of the border. And I would tell you the vast majority of Canadians want to see this end and end immediately. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with Windsor Mayor Drew Dilkins about the trucker protests and blockade of the Ambassador Bridge on the Canada side of the Ambassador Bridge. Uh, it's a blockade that's gone on for four days now and is beginning to have a significant economic impact. Uh, Ford has announced that it is going to shut down its Windsor engine plant because it cannot get uh, the things that it needs across the border to keep it going. I would imagine that we will also see uh, a number of other um, a, number, a number of other particularly auto-related uh, disruptions because of this. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call and tell us what you make of these large protests in Canada over vaccine mandates. Uh, what do you think of the way that these protesters are expressing their grievances? Uh, do you think it's okay to block access to North America's busiest border crossing to make your point? Uh, also, give us a sense of what you think the authorities in Canada ought to be doing about this. Should they be clearing the, the way for, for truck traffic and other traffic to continue across the Ambassador Bridge? Or should they be patient and allow this kind of expression, which it is, it is a political expression, uh, to take place without uh, the fear of police intervention. Uh, A little later in the program, we are going to have a much broader conversation about this kind of action, this kind of protest, and the place it occupies in the spectrum, along the spectrum of reasonable discourse uh, in our country. It's something we talk about an awful lot. And if you think back to just a few years ago, the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, those disruptions, how were they met by authorities? What was 
your opinion of those disruptions. Uh, how would you compare that, for instance, to what these truckers are doing? Uh, do you think that we tend to think of things really differently depending on the color of the skin of the protesters who are involved? We're going to talk about all of those issues uh, in a little bit. But right now, we, we do want to hear what you have to say about <clears throat> what's going on on the other side of the border. Uh, Drew, before we get to our callers, I, I want to ask you about patience and and uh, time. How, how long before you have to, to do something to clear the border? How long are you willing to wait, for instance, before you would uh, uh, instruct the police there in Windsor to make sure that these truckers get out of the way? Well, I, I would have wanted this ended uh, within the first couple hours of it starting. Uh, un- unfortunately, I don't have that authority. And even though I chair the police services board here in Windsor, uh, there is a, a bright line uh, in legislation at all three levels of government in Canada that politicians cannot direct police operations. Uh, and so the mayor, the chair of the board, the board itself cannot direct police operations. That is, that is the responsibility of the chief and the administration of the police service. Obviously, we are responsible for making sure that they have the resources that they need uh, and that they are providing uh, you know, safe and effective policing to the community. So it's a call it's, that the police chief would make then? Yeah, which is very frustrating because people think, hey, you're the mayor, make something happen. And the reality <laughs> is, besides dialogue and discourse with the police administration, which we're having every 15 minutes, uh, at the end of the day, it is their operational call of how to act, when to act, and what to do. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, you know, it is a bit frustrating uh, in that way, but it, it is the law and I know the law and I respect the law that we have here. Uh, but at the same time, I'm the one getting uh, thousands of emails and phone calls from people in my community who are saying, why aren't you acting? Why aren't you doing something? you got to move these people out. Uh, and I appreciate the sentiment that the folks in my community are, are, are sharing in that regard because I feel the same way. Uh, and we all want to see this end. And the reality is what the protesters are asking for, uh, it, it varies so widely that it is a, effectively a leaderless group. Uh, and it's unclear what, even if they got something, what that something would be that would make them go away. So, uh, so, so to be clear, if you had the authority uh, by now, you would have you would have cleared the border. Yeah, I, I mean, I listen, it's not a criticism of the chief. I just, I, you know, I, I see what's going on here and I see very clearly uh, that there's no resolution that is going to make all of these protesters happy. So it is it is okay to protest. The hallmark of both of our democracies in the United States and Canada uh, is, is, is freedom to express yourself, freedom to protest and demonstrate. All of that is okay. Uh, what's not okay is to use your protest uh, and expressing yourselves by blocking down uh, and choking off the economy in both countries. Hmm. Uh, that is not okay. And that goes above and beyond what a, a, your constitution and our constitution uh, would provide with respect to peaceful demonstration. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We've got a lot of folks queued up to talk about uh, this blockade already. Let's start with Jennifer in Windsor. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking my call. Hi. Go ahead. Um, I guess uh, I I don't really have a question. I just have a point. Um, I know, like, Canadians as well as everyone else in the world are super exhausted with everything that's been going on for the last few years. And now we're seeing places like Detroit and the rest of the U.S. open up completely uh, without these restrictions. And now these these protests have started. And just yesterday, other provinces have opened up and cleared their restrictions entirely. So... I mean, I guess I'm wondering, is that going to be the outcome? Is that the desired outcome is to get everything lifted? Or should we be coming in and like, like dropping the hammer on the protesters when things are already moving that direction, it seems? So, so Jennifer, what would, you, what would you prefer? Do you think that uh, waiting to, to, to see what happens with restrictions is the right way? Or would you like to see police in, in Windsor move in and clear the border? You know what? I I don't want to see police move in and clear the border. I don't think that any. I think that that would definitely instill lots of unnecessary violence when, uh, like, provinces seem to be responding to these protesters. So, what's going on with Ontario? Yeah, yeah. 
Jennifer, a great question and, and appreciate the call, especially since uh, you you are in Windsor and, and experiencing this from, from that side of the border. Uh, Mayor Dilkins, I wonder what your reaction is to what Jennifer's saying. Yeah, I appreciate her call. And uh, and we do see a, a couple of provinces who've moved to uh, either remove or uh, diminish the number, the amount of restriction that they put in place with respect to COVID. And I imagine you'll see that happen probably fairly short order across the country. You'll start seeing uh, a lessening of restrictions in, in many different provinces. Uh, you, you know, the reality here is, and we didn't talk about this yet, that uh, if police were to move in, what's going to happen is you're going to end up uh, in a situation where you could have violence, uh, which is a bad thing. We don't want to see that happen. Mm -hmm. The other situation is if we were to flush out 150 protesters that are here today in their cars, you know, in two days from now, does that bring 300 more back, you know, as the rallying cry of let's go to Windsor and support what's going on in Windsor. Uh, and so either of those things is suboptimal. Uh, we don't want to see that happen. And we're trying to find, uh, you know, a way forward. But it's also worth noting that this, this, protest started as a result of truckers not wanting to have that vaccine requirement in place at our federal level when they returned to Canada. Hmm. Uh, and that was the key message to begin with. And a week later, the United States implemented the exact same measure. And for 90 days, they had told the whole world that that's what's going to happen. So even if Justin Trudeau removed the restriction, uh, the, the primary complaint that the truckers had that started the protest, they still can't cross the border into the United States because you have the restriction in place now too. Uh, and so it, it's a it's it's a complex situation. It's a complex human situation. It's a complex on the ground situation. Uh, and you know everyone wants a resolution, and, and so do I. And sooner rather than later. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Dan in Ferndale. Dan, what's on your mind? Hey there. Uh, thanks for the call, uh, having the call. I was curious if there's any international legal means that can be used to either, one, convince the chief to act, or two, to get back any of the lost money that is going on. I mean, the supply chain itself is under such duress, and uh, the truckers, while their rights are there, but now it's international. Now they're affecting the United States. So are there any legal means that can be uh, utilized? Thank you. Great question, Dan. Uh, what's the answer, Mayor Delkins? Well, I, 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 although I'm a lawyer, I'm not sure I have a, a good answer <laughs> for him. I'm not sure if there's some tort uh, available legally, some remedy uh, that you could go after. But, you know, just it's an interesting point. I appreciate appreciate uh, the, the sentiment that, that Dan shared there. Uh, the irony is if you had 200, 150, 200 protesters on the ground here, uh, <laughs> you, you know, we're talking about the loss of trade and the amount of $400 million per day. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that anyone could ever materially cover even a fraction of that amount from the people who are here, even if you were successful in some lawsuit. Uh, but it's an interesting point. And certainly, you know, if folks had the prospect of losing everything uh, by holding out their protests, that probably would have many people make a smart decision, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. Dan, uh, appreciate the call uh, and the question. Let's go to Another caller from Windsor, Denise. Denise, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, yeah, as I was saying, I'm an American living in Windsor, and I think it's a bit hypocritical because they have, like, barbecue set up and all these things that Indigenous or Black people would have, and it would have been shut down. I feel like 10 cities have been shut down for less, and I just think it's very hypocritical. So, in other That's words, you, you feel like if this was a, gr a different group of, of people that this would not have been tolerated even oh, for the 40s. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. they're white men. And, you know, they're driving around with swastikas or F. Trudeau. It's just basically Trumpers mm. trying to get their voice. They're like white man babies. Mm. Uh, Mayor Dilkins, <clears throat> we've got a number of people who've either on social media and are in the, the queue to, to be on the phones talking about the fact that this is a group of if not all, certainly mostly white men, and that uh, the, the the response uh, seems different uh, than it would be if this were a group of African Americans, if this were a group of of native citizens there in Canada, which I know is a, a large population in 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 that country as well. Um, talk about that that dynamic, and I guess how you navigate that uh, politically in, in the seat that you're in. I, I, 
I don't ascribe to that comment. So I, I, I certainly don't think that the response would be any different regardless of who's here. I think what you've seen in police responses across the province and around the country uh, when it, with respect to indigenous blockades or indigenous protests is, are also the same response, a very measured response where there's a perimeter blocked and, and negotiations that are ongoing. And it's effectively the same type of response that you see in place uh, here. And so I, I don't think it has anything to do with the color of the skin, uh, the sex, the sexual orientation, the race, color, creed, any of that stuff. Uh, this is about lawless, illegal behavior. And uh, regardless of who is undertaking that behavior, uh, I think the response would be measured and be the same. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, I hear what you're saying. And and obviously, I don't know as much about what goes on uh, in Canada as goes on in this in this country. I, I do have a hard time believing, though, that, for instance, if a group of African-Americans blocked the Ambassador Bridge from this side, uh, of the border that, that that would be tolerated or that, uh, um, you know, four days would pass without the police in, in, engaging. I mean, uh, the, the, there is a racial dynamic to this whole thing that, I mean, it, it, it doesn't have to do with the protest. It has to do with, uh, you know, the, the, the racial inequities that, that exist in our country. Are, are you saying that th- those don't exist, that there isn't a double standard uh, in Canada that, that would look the way it does here in the United States? Well, okay, I, I, I can't really, <laughs> I mean, this, this, this conversation is leading down a road about racial inequality. Mm-hmm. I thought we we're here to talk about the protest. I mean, this has mm-hmm. nothing to do with it. I don't know how you would handle it on your side. And I, I, you know, there are Sikhs who are part of this protest. There's all sorts of different race, colors, and creeds that are, that are part of this. So mm-hmm. it really has, it, it has no bearing or impact on the response. At the end of the day, it is illegal behavior by human beings on the ground here. And the response will be the same, regardless of the color of your skin or, or who you pray to. Okay. Uh, let's go finally to Sean in Windsor. Sean, welcome to the show. Uh, yeah. Thank you for taking my call. Um, well, I, I just on the last comment, I would disagree. I think uh, if this were um, an environmental protest or anything like that, uh, I think it would be shut down immediately. I think the mayor would if it was affecting the economy, he would probably call, uh, put pressure on the police chief, and it would be shut down. But that's not the reason for my call. Um, I, I think the, uh, pre- the Prime Minister Trudeau has made it clear that he's waiting in the sidelines for people to ask for his help. Our Premier Ford, uh, which we refer to as Ford Nation, has not asked for help. This is his province. And our mayor has not, in my knowledge, put pressure on Ford Nation to come to Windsor to say, listen, we need help. We need you to ask the Prime Minister to help us. And, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows. And, you know, in that group of people protesting, there's a really nasty element, you know. And, uh, and I think it's a, it's a hot potato. Uh, the Prime Minister doesn't want to go in and shut it down. Premier doesn't want to go in and shut it down because it to a, it's certain a certain segment is tied to his base. Yeah, that's uh, very unsavory. Uh, there's a lot of fu Trudeau, yeah, a lot I've of very toxic stuff. And I just want to know why is the mayor not publicly asking our premier? to ask the federal government for help and shut it yeah. down. Uh, Sean, I don't want to I don't want to cut you off but we're going to run out of time in the segment and I do want to get the mayor to answer that question. Yeah, yeah, I mean Sean, uh, you know, if you followed the news yesterday, uh, letters were sent uh, to both the provincial and federal government asking for additional police resources on the ground. I spoke with the premier twice yesterday and the solicitor general, uh, and the response was almost immediate. We have uh, a number of OPP officers and specialized teams uh, that once we put the official request in yesterday, the premier responded immediately, and those folks are starting to trickle in uh, from across the province of Ontario. I continue to be in conversation. I probably had five or six phone calls uh, with Marco Mendicino, who's the Minister of Public Safety for Canada. In fact, he just rang right now while we're on this show, and I will be calling him back. So there's great lines of communication. The requests have been made. The province has responded, and we continue to try and get the federal government involved to help resolve this truly national crisis. Okay. Drew Dilkins, mayor of the city of Windsor. Always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us here on uh, Detroit Today. Thanks very much. Have a great day. 
When we come back, we are going to continue talking about the ways in which people choose to express political dissent and what constitutes, quote, legitimate political discourse. Do you think this truck driver protest in Canada falls into the category of legitimate political discourse? The GOP recently released an official statement saying the January 6th insurrection last year is legitimate political discourse. We're going to talk about all of that with Timothy Schaefer, one of the nation's leading experts on the subject, and we want to continue to hear from you, our listeners, both on the phones, 313-577-1019, and on social media, Facebook or Twitter. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. We've been talking about these large truck driver protests in Canada that are causing major disruptions here in Detroit because of the blockade of the Ambassador Bridge. And we're asking this critical question. Is this the right way to protest? Is there such a thing as a right or a wrong way? To protest. And how do we define what's legitimate political discourse and what's unacceptable disruption? That exact phrase, legitimate political discourse, happens to be what the Republican Party used recently in an official statement to describe the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol last year. Quote, legitimate political discourse. Is that really how we should describe a violent riot that was a direct attempt to block the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimate presidential election? And if that's not okay, what are some of the other ways that we see people protesting that aren't okay? I tend to think that we see these things through the lens of our own politics. When people are protesting something that we agree with, we tend to think that, well, it's okay to do anything because they're sticking up for their rights. But when they're protesting something that we disagree with, we tend to think, hey, why don't the cops get involved? Why don't they stop this? These are questions at the heart of our interaction and discussions in this country right now. And I think they're more critical because there are so many things that so many people are really worked up about right now. 20 years ago, I doubt you would have seen the number of people show up in Washington who did last January 6th. 20 years ago, I doubt you would have seen the number of protesters that we saw during the Black Lives Matter protests a few years ago out in the streets. Everybody's a little on edge about their rights and making sure that they're respected. But where do we draw the lines between sticking up for those rights, being part of the discourse, and disrupting? just for the sake of disruption. That's what we want to explore for the rest of the hour, where those lines are, who gets to draw them, and how we, even as a divided society, decide how to come up with solutions out of all of these interactions. We've got a great guest with us to help us unpack all of that. Timothy Timothy Schaefer is director of Kansas State University's Institute for Civic Discourse and Democracy. He's also director of Civic Engagement and Deliberative Democracy for the National Institute for Civil Discourse, and he's associate editor for the Journal of Deliberative Democracy. Timothy Schaefer, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, hey, thanks so much. It's wonderful to be with you. And uh, I think, as you were just mentioning, it's such a, a salient question for all of us, not just a bunch of academics. Yeah, yeah. So we've been talking about these protests in Canada against vaccine mandates. Of course, that's a different country with slightly different laws and norms 
that's around political discourse. But I'm curious about what you make of what's happening here. This is a blockade that, of course, is disrupting a big part of the local economy. It will very soon, if it goes on, disrupt the national economy in both in both countries. Uh, is this, in your mind, a legitimate way for these truckers to make the point that they're making? Well, I mean, as you noted, right, it, it has seemingly moved from a very localized kind of experience of this blockade to something that is is very soon, if not already, having these ripple effects across both of these countries, right, potentially for kind of a long time uh, for kind of uh, the trade between countries and just manufacturing. I mean, realizing the kind of ecosystem, as I think, as we've we've seen with, with COVID uh, more globally, too, is we're all interconnected in, in ways that we have to really acknowledge that as some of that shapes maybe how we, we address some of these kinds of concerns. So, you know, more pointedly to your question, is this legitimate? I, I would step back and say, how, you know, how, how do we, as you said a few minutes ago, how do we approach this and what are our politics? And that is a major factor in what determines if we see this as, as being, you know, something we align with and support because this is kind of the grassroots kind of um, uh, democracy in practice, right? Or is this just utter disruption and, and they're challenging these things? We could flip this on a, on a whole host of issues. But I want to be really careful, uh, importantly, because not just to turn this about this other side sort of orientation. One of the, I think one of the important ways to think about this, and, and it was in the argument um, that uh, Jen Murchie and I made in, in an essay out uh, just a few days ago about this legitimate political discourse, trying to create some space between them. And on one argument is, are we making arguments that we're trying to persuade people to our views? And are we doing that kind of in good faith in a way that is giving people those opportunities to do so? Or are we kind of confronting and conf uh, using coercion, right? This kind of confrontation, this violence, uh, classic um, scholar Bernard Crick talked about this. Why do we have politics? Well, it's a lot better than war. And so not to conflate these things. And so when we think about something like protest, um, yeah, it is by design supposed to be disruptive, right? This is why we have blockades on streets, uh, marches and such. Um, you know, conversation a long time ago, um, a scholar wrote, is not the soul of democracy. There are moments we have to break out of that and kind of scream, whether it's Black Lives Matter, um, other, other scenarios. You know, so when we think about social movements and strikes and demonstrations, they all fall kind of within that, that window. The... The challenge, though, as you've noted, is that these things can have real and kind of crippling effects, not just um, economically, which is very real. And for many people, this is, um, and I'm sure where, where you're sitting, is, is being felt uh, immensely, right? Because you're, you're literally seeing it and experiencing it. Mm -hmm. But also when we think about, like, what are the potential implications? I think about... Um, 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 I might get the, the, the language wrong here, but the Bridgegate in, in New Jersey, when that was going on a number of years ago, and when they found that that was done for a political reason, the first thought that I have is not people being grumpy that they're backed up to get to work in that morning, but I'm thinking about the person who dies in an ambulance because they're unable to get down the highway uh, to, to the hospital sure. in time because it's being done in such a way. And so I bring a little bit of that to this question, right? To what end? What are the implications? So is it is it not just that GM can get parts across this bridge or can we get um, you know, uh, agricultural products or whatever it might be? Those are all really important. So I don't wanna dismiss that. But when we start to think about the real effect and the impact on people's lives, this is, this is where it becomes a real question, right? And how do we make the statements that we're making uh, with also acknowledgement that we're trying to get people to, to see this? <laughs> Maybe the last point on this is what is this doing? To what end is always my my question. And um, by all indications, our politics right now, because we're so deeply enrooted in what we refer to as affective polarization, right, that we see that other side as not just people with a different set of policy views, say about tax policy or marginal rates or whatever it might be, but we really see them as enemies and we need to beat them. We need, we need to win, right, at all costs. And we're seeing that play out here in the States as we're redrawing maps and such, right? If we're not playing the game fairly, then that's 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 a real loss for democracy at large. So it moves away from just a kind of a left, right, or a certain party, even if we're talking in Canadian politics, right, um, or U.S. But that sense of 
do we have the ability to see ourselves as something bigger, as a, a larger collective? What is what is our responsibility? And if COVID is uh, in this experience for the last couple of years has indicated anything, we've really struggled with that larger sense of identity. Um, we're, we're very fractured. Um, and we break along some of these lines that that political identity has come to dominate virtually every other category that has in the past defined people, whether it was religion or region, um, uh, education, all these kinds of things fall way down the list now. And politics is that primary factor that all of a sudden I can figure out, you, you know, you drive this car, you eat this food, you go to this grocery store, I know who you are. And that's a real problem for democracy, whether we're talking about in the United States, in Canada, or really elsewhere. So uh, one of the things I want to really drill down on is the, 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 the method, I guess, that we would use to judge the legitimacy of a certain course of action or, or, or protest. So to me, just looking at it without thinking about the politics that are involved, this bridge blockade doesn't look terribly different from the Montgomery bus boycott in Alabama in the 1960s. And, you know, this is, uh, this is something that, that we used for many years in the civil rights um, uh, movement here in, uh, in the United States. This, this method of uh, of disruption to bring attention and to put pressure, and I, I said it was in the 1960s. Of course, the Montgomery bus con, uh, boycott is in in, in the mid 1950s. But but w- w- the only way to distinguish between that and what these truckers are doing is through a political lens, right? I support civil rights. I support uh, the, the the idea that African Americans should be treated like. Uh, everybody else have the same access to do things. And so I support the, the idea of the Montgomery bus co- boycott. I don't support the idea that people should should run around and not be vaccinated. Uh, I think that's a public health threat, first of all. And so I don't support th- what, what, what these truckers are doing. But, but that leads us back to this intractable situation where I just don't see the other side, right? I just don't, I don't acknowledge their rights as, as being as important or as, uh, as worthy of protection as, as my own. Why is that? Is that the right way to think about it? Or is that the wrong way to think about it? Well, I, I, I think it's a great question and a really good point. Um, and, you know, in another way, to you know, maybe add to that and think about this is also what happens to the ACLU on occasion that by default, many people think about it as kind of categorically falling on, on a certain end of the spectrum, if you want to use that language. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they they show up and they're supporting and, and providing counsel and such to somebody who seemingly is not on that end of that political spectrum. And for, for some people, that's a really like jarring moments to realize why are you defending this kind of view, right? So often under the umbrella of kind of the free speech um, arguments. And and it does, right? I mean, if we were to strip away uh, either other color or or time or place, right? If all of a sudden we, we, we make this, um, you know, uh, use pseudonyms, for example, right? And we're not talking about... Uh, the, the bridge there, right? We're not talking about the Ambassador Bridge. We're, we're not talking about Montgomery. Um, we're, we're not using some of those things that very clearly mark um, these moments in time that we kind of culturally, like, quote, know how to think about some of this. And if we do that, this is this is a real challenge, right? And it goes back to, I guess, a little bit of my, my comment earlier is what, what what is actually, what's coming from this, right? And, and arguably, the the, boy, the the bus boycotts and you know and sitting in the counters and the like right that was very disruptive it was amazingly jarring to people's lives um, and and you could say something akin to that about these these truckers uh, in this blockade an important maybe an important distinction to make here is not just that you know can those ambulances get where they need to go because that that's kind of an extreme form of this but it's also a question of who within society. Are the, who are the ones raising their voices? Who are the ones that are kind of breaking outside of the decorum or that civil discourse, if you want to use that language, and are screaming, right, and saying, here we are, um, and here's, here's your movements, your strikes, your, your demonstrations, and the like. 
And if, if it's those who are most marginalized in the society, whatever, for whatever reasons, whether it's economically, mm -hmm. uh, racially and, and such, it seems, it seems that there's an opportunity for that to be seen as, as more legitimate because they are, they are kind of on, on, on the fringes, so to speak. But if we changed our language a little bit, we can very quickly see how some of these people who would, you know, be identified as being white, maybe predominantly male, right? The trucking industry is not exclusively um, male, but you know, heavily dominated in those ways, right? Uh, ideologically to the right, right? So all of a sudden, it starts to tick a different set of boxes. And I think that's maybe subconsciously uh, a little bit of what makes uh, a little space between these is, you know, what are the differences between um, uh, Black Americans in 1958, for example, um, versus a, a white um, uh, Canadian in, in 2022, right, the, the, the necessity here of, of, of going kind of out of these boundaries. But it does speak to, I think, some of these other layers of, of trust in systems and senses of identity and that notion of, of, of kind of the common good, right? Yeah. Um, again, it's what are, we, what are we being asked to do, right? Am I being asked to have my humanity recognized and be seen as, as part of that uh, political and cultural system? Am I being asked to, you know, to do potentially something that is in the collective good, right? I.e., there's truly a novel virus that has not existed in our world before, and we're confronting this not just, you know, because of political geo geo kind of political boundaries, but all of this, right? All of these things are are real, and as we know it, right? And as as information continues to develop, thank you, science, right? In those yeah. sense, those senses, but that ability to say. What are we being asked to do? Am I giving up my my kind of agency and autonomy, am, or am I, you know, potentially um, being frustrated with some of this? And I think those are those places where we can start to maybe pull these apart a little bit, the way that you have set it up, because we really do need to think about what are my obligations to others, even when that becomes uncomfortable. And and that that's what brings us to a bunch of truckers who are saying I I need to recognize have that recognized for me as well for X Y and Z reasons. Yeah. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about uh, reasonable discourse and the lines that we draw between that and disruptive things that we need to have the authorities crack down on. We want to hear more from you on the phones and on social media. Stan in Royal Oak, Wardell in Detroit, Maryland, and Oak Park, Derek in Detroit. Uh, we will get to you next. Uh, you can also go to social media, Facebook and Twitter. Put comments there and we can include you. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Timothy Schaefer, director of Kansas State University's Institute for Civic Discourse and Democracy. We're talking about the lines around civil discourse, reasonable discourse in our country. Are we, are we in a place where those lines are changing, where we're reconsidering what's legitimate expression or protest and what's not? We want to hear from you. As well, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and uh, put comments there, and we'll try to work those into the conversation. I want to start with Wardell in Detroit this time. Wardell, tell us what you're thinking. Okay, and I try to make this quick, mm -hmm. but I, I think you're having the right discussion. You know, I think it's a very good discussion uh, to have. But I think when it gets to the point, like in, in, in Canada, when – you're affecting the lives of everyday people. You know, it's, it's not just the authority or, or whatever that is. When actually people cannot get somebody cannot get to emergency, somebody gets to the hospital, somebody's house is on fire, emergency equipment can't come through. Then I think you have to say it's gone too far. And I think uh, one way to to deal uh, with because Trump in, intervened uh, for Black Lives Matter and Obama brought brought out the Democrats. 
demolition crew to get rid of uh, Occupy Wall Street. Mm -hmm. So things can be done when they go, when it's considered extreme or nothing. To me, it wasn't that extreme. But I think the most humane way to do it is to, and I'm saying this as a, as a peaceful protester myself, I think the most humane way to do it is to figure out the right amount of uh, tear gas that you can put out there that will scare the people without injuring them. Mm. Wow. And I think that I think I think that can resolve the issue. It's a, it's a certain amount that you can use to get people away. At the same time, nobody dies or gets sick. Wow, uh, Wardell, that that uh, frightens me a little. Uh, <laughs> thinking about uh, how we define what you're talking about, but but I think the sentiment there makes a lot of uh, a lot of sense in in terms of how you want to 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 keep. Some uh, thing, some disruptions to a, to to a minimum. I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Though, before we get back to our guest, I want to get to Stan in Royal Oak. Stan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks uh -huh. for having me. I agree with some of the comments of Wardell. Um, if ambulances were being stopped or fire trucks were being stopped, but I don't think there's evidence of that here. If those things were happening, I think it crosses the line. Uh, I want to say, first off, I disagree profoundly with their um, cause, the people who are blocking the bridge. However, I had to stop and think. I was involved in a very disruptive protest in college where we took over the building that housed the registrar's office and the cashier and people couldn't get their transcripts. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of protests. Thoreau first talked about, as far as I know, in, on civil disobedience, Gandhi took it and ran with it, and of course Martin Luther King used it. And as you pointed out earlier, those protests were disruptive. But in all civil disobedience, and, and Thoreau made this point, and Martin Luther King Jr. made this point, part of it is a willingness to go to jail for breaking the law. Um, I don't know how you disrupt this peacefully. Tear gas wouldn't be my first way of doing it. Um, trying to force them out of the trucks and moving the trucks, yes, and and jailing them. They they have to be willing, if you're going to commit civil disobedience, you have to be willing to pay the price. That was all part of Thoreau's and King's and Gandhi's um, philosophy. Yeah. Uh, so, Stan, I, I, I love I love uh, that you called and, and shared your thinking about this. I think that that, that nuance, that, that uh, kind of parsing of – the really finer points of this is is really, really important. Um, quickly, I want to get to Adrian before we get back to our guest. Adrian in Detroit. Go ahead. Good good morning, um, Stephen. Hey. Um, I, Henderson, I want to tell you, I love how you phrased that question. Tell me if I'm wrong. And because we always assume we're right. So when you <laughs> tell your guest, am I wrong? Tell me if I'm right. wrong and let me see your point. But also, I have to say, what is best? For the greater good, those tru those truckers have rights, but it is infringing on everyone else's rights. So when do we say your rights are okay? We agree with that, but now you're denying everyone else their rights. It is the right of the greater good. What helps the greater good, not only the truckers, but everyone else. Yeah, Adrian, uh, that's a really I think that's a really interesting way to try to think of these kinds of disruptions and to evaluate them. Um, uh, Timothy Schaefer, react to not just what Adrian was talking about, but uh, but our other callers as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to actually have a longer uh, cup of coffee with the three of them. So, I mean, thanks for those comments. And I think they all really speak to the heart of this, the tensions between how do we, I mean, part of what makes a democratic society a democratic society is that we can do these things, right? This, this uh, sense of peaceable assembly is baked into our First Amendment, right? When we talk about the freedoms of religion and press and, and, and speech and such. And so, uh, but the last caller, you know, just to, to jump on a little bit of that point is really, I mean, really this tension, right? What trumps, um, I didn't, that's not a pun here, but like, <laughs> right. um, but what, what is it that we privilege? Is it the individual or is it the community, mm -hmm. right? And and so, uh, you know, there's a classic text, um, John Dewey in a book called The Public and Its Problems. He, he kind of talks about this. It says, you know, democracy, you know, paraphrasing slightly here, but like democracy is primarily a, a, a way of thinking about community life and only secondary is it this kind of sense of like what the state does, right? The state functions, actions, you know, i.e. government. And so, the, the wrestling with some of these questions are at the heart of what it means to be here 
instead of someplace else. And if you've been, or anybody listening has been paying attention watching the Olympics, it's always for me that striking moment. Right now, it's happening in China, for example, and thinking about what it means to be a citizen in a place. And that's not just this kind of ticket to kind of have my own agency and, and kind of function without any uh, regard for others around me, because we're, we're part of an ecosystem, right? Um, uh, and, a, and a political cultural ecosystem is a really important one to recognize. And if we don't kind of uh, acknowledge the real um, expectation and requirement that comes with that, then I think we find ourselves in this spot that if we're just a bunch of little kind of um, atoms bopping around without seeing that we're part of this larger effort, um, this thing that kind of sticks together. And right, as one of the earlier callers said, right, this is not quite I don't think, right? And this would be a good question, right? Are there people who are being impeded in ways that are, you know, so severe that it's affecting their lives? Right. Um, the, the livelihood question is different, but it's really related, right? Um, I, I think the first caller, whose name I'm, I'm, I'm not recalling at this moment, really said a good point. The sense of everyday people, this is where it really starts to matter. So there are protests and things that can be um, uh, dramatic, uh, significant, right? Million Man March and all sorts of things, whether it's in Washington or elsewhere. But those are being done in certain ways that they're speaking to authorities, right? They're speaking to right. power. Right. We're in front of the legislature or or the or the White House or wherever it might be. Choose other countries the same way, right? Showing up in in in, in capitals and the like. It's another thing to to be thinking about some of this literally, and, and we've seen it for the last number of years, right? In in streets, in, in the ways streets. that people can literally get to their places. If I can't ride on public transport, and that's the way I get to my place of employment, and I can't feed my children or do things in that respect, then we got a real problem. This is where I think we have to continue to push and ask those questions. How do we live together? How do we live well? And that's that's our real challenge, whether we're Canadian or American. Tim Schaefer of the Kansas State University's Institute for Civic Discourse and Democracy. It's really great to have you here to help us uh, think this through. Thanks for, for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. That's going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk about Governor Gretchen Whitmer's ambitious new budget proposal for us here in Michigan. And Detroit's new official historian, Jamon Jordan, is going to join to talk about his new position, Black History Month, and to bust a couple of myths about black history in Detroit. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.